Okay, I think we're ready. Brandon's given me the thumbs up and said it's time to start, so I guess we'll start. Thanks for being here tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew chapter 9. Go ahead and do that, and then while you do, I want to tell you a couple of things to keep in mind as we start as far as matters of prayer. Some of you know that Ron Killo, hi Barnes, here's the handouts right here. Um, Ron Killow's been homesick for mm, almost a week now, I guess. He is um, recovering from a respiratory thing, so you're going to want to pray for him, please, as he continues to get better, been to the doctor, has antibiotics and all that. And then also today we found out that um, Rachel Slaughter's grandfather passed away very suddenly, so I know you'll want to be in prayer for their family too. They both Michael and Rachel when they talked about it they got a little teary. It was just unexpected and very very sweet family, I think. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, hi Stuart. You don't have to sit in the corner. You haven't been that bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I think he has. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, let's pray together. Okay. Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence here with us tonight. Thank you for the work that you are doing in my life and in the lives of each person in this room. I pray for Ron as he recovers. I pray for Rachel and Michael as they mourn the loss of this dear, dear grandfather. And I pray for um, Rachel's grandmother as well. Lord, we just ask that you bring comfort and peace to them, and we ask that you speak to us tonight. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I know some of you are disappointed because I told you last time we met that Pastor Don was coming back to teach, and then we had the snowstorm. So he is going to come back to teach, but he said we just should stick on the previously arranged schedule and so Don will come back and do that Matthew the rest of Matthew 8 soon but don't know when that is exactly so um, so you're stuck with me again tonight and we're going to be in Matthew 9 but before we do I want us since it has been two weeks I thought we would review a little bit of what we've learned remember that we are our series is about King Jesus and the authority that he has that's demonstrated in Matthew. We're looking particularly at his miracles. And so back a chapter in chapter 8, it's a little awkward tonight, I'm not sure what I've done here, but King Jesus demonstrates his authority in chapter 8 by um, defying religious customs. That's where he healed the leper, remember that? And he touched the man. Um, And then breaking through ethnic boundaries, and that was the centurion's servant. And then valuing both men and women, and that was when he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then when he cast out evil spirits, so he showed authority over the in the spirit realm. realm. Well, there is more in chapter 8. Pastor Don's going to cover that uh, in a... whenever we schedule it in. Um, But we're going to look at chapter 9 and how Jesus shows his authority in two more stories tonight. All right? So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 first. 
here we go. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Okay, so the word authority was used twice. First and foremost, in this short little story, how did Jesus demonstrate his authority in a new way, something we haven't seen? What did he do here? He forgave sin. Yes, he forgave sin. And so that's your first little blank if if you want to take notes. It's King Jesus demonstrates his authority in chapter 9 by forgiving sins. He healed the man. So, yes, he showed authority over paralysis, which he did before. Sorry, Michael, did I miss you? It's all right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, he showed authority over paralysis, just like he did with the centurion's servant. But he met the man's greatest need first his need for forgiveness. And so let's look at that a little more thoroughly. Look again at verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The story is told in a little bit more detail in Mark 2 and in Luke 5. And in children's ministry, we always called this story the four friends who helped. It's the story of the four friends. Remember it? Some of you moms are <laughs> nodding your head. Yes, I remember that story. Yes. We, when they, the people brought carrying Jesus on the mat, four friends, one on a corner, brought him in. They tried to get him to the doorway in to see Jesus in this crowded house, this house that had uh, teachers of the law, Pharisees there, and they couldn't even get to the door. And so they just climbed up on the roof and dug, literally broke open the roof, removed the tiles, and lowered him down right in front of King Jesus. What a scene. Can you imagine being the homeowner? What they thought? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) Yes. And then could the sandy soil have been filtering around all over them? Were they all covered in the dust and the dirt? We don't really know what it looked like, but we know that Jesus recognized it as the desperate attempt to get help. They believed Jesus could help them, and so they did whatever it took to get that help. The Pharisees were indeed shocked and indignant, but that didn't deter Jesus In fact, he said he recognized their faith. And their, I think, has to include not just the four friends, but it had to include the man, too, because that's who he spoke to. 
Jesus turned and spoke to him, and he spoke so tenderly. Take heart, my son. Be encouraged, my child. Don't be distressed, dear one, because your sins are forgiven. Interestingly enough, we don't know how the man responded there. It doesn't tell us. In fact, none of the Gospels address what the man said then when Jesus looked at him and said, Your sins are forgiven. But we only read and get pretty good detail about what those Pharisees and scribes did. They began thinking to themselves, Just who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? And it's interesting because when I first read it, I thought that their cry of blasphemy was, who did Jesus think he was to forgive? Yes, and I think that's right. But it was more that they were the ones that were supposed to go through the process to forgive people's sins. When Jesus spoke to him and said, your sins are forgiven, it skipped what would happen in the temple. It skipped the things that they got to do. They were the ones who were supposed to say, yes, your sins are forgiven or not, because of the appropriate sacrifices had been made or not been made. And st- so it was a pride issue, too, not just that Jesus took it upon himself to forgive sins. Although, of course, we know that he could and he did. But the other thing I think that it shows Jesus' authority is, did you catch what it said? Um, let's see if I can get back to it. Uh, well, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus knew what they were thinking. Jesus has, shows authority because he knows our thoughts. So that's your next blank. He knew the thoughts of the teachers of the law, and then he confronted them and said, Why do you think evil? Which is easier for you to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Let's consider what they said for a minute. Your sins are forgiven. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven than get up and walk. Why was it easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say get up and walk? Nobody knows, yeah. They couldn't prove that their sins were forgiven right there in that little house, that crowded house with all those people. Instead, they could prove if the man was able to walk. So, yeah, it was real easy to say, oh, your sins are forgiven, because nobody would know if really were. But Jesus demonstrated that what he said first was real by telling the man, get up and go. In fact, I think there's a quote on your listening guide that says, it's from the Zondervan Study Bible. It says, your sins are, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than get up and walk because the first of these commands cannot be disproved as easily. So to show that Jesus has the authority to make the easier claim, he demonstrates his miracle working power that vindicates that harder claim. And we also see in this verse why he performed this miracle so that we could see his authority 
so that we would, could know the authority, that he has the authority to forgive sins, so that you may know. It points to the larger purpose of Christ's coming. It wasn't all about just the healing. It was really about the forgiving. <laughs> That's why Jesus came, to provide a path to us, for us, to the Father, to provide restoration. Jesus turns to the man, heals him, and restores his life. Physically and spiritually, he provides the healing of his sins, the forgiving of his sins, and then the healing of his life. And he says, rise up, pick up your mat, and go home. So we know that King Jesus demonstrates his authority by restoring life. As I pondered it, I thought, the man was forgiven, he was made well, and he went home. The passage tells us he got up and he went home. Forgiven, made well, went home. Doesn't that sound like restoration? Doesn't that kind of give you a hint of what's coming for us? We're forgiven, we're made well, and one day we'll be made truly well, and we'll go home. (laughs) What a glorious day that will be. (laughs) Luke tells us a little more. I want to show you what Luke tells us in, about this. He says, And immediately he rose up before them, he the man that was healed, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. The man's life was transformed, and the result was glory to God. He went home glorifying God. Isn't that what it should be for all of us? Whenever God works in our life, that it should result in immediate, immediate glory to God. Yeah. Back in Matthew, we see that it wasn't just the man, but the crowd that gave glory to God. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They revered the Lord. They honored him. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, they didn't really get it yet. They still thought Jesus was just a man. They didn't understand, but they glorified God that Jesus had been given this authority. Recognizing the authority of King Jesus should always result in praise and glory. And that praise and glory does continue in the chapter. So we'll tackle the next story that begins in verse 18. Give you a heads up. We're going to skip verses 20 to 22 because it's another completely different story. Um, And Ron is scheduled to teach that next week. So we're praying he's up and well enough to do that. We'll see. But we're going to start reading in verse 18. While he was saying these things to him, Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So I know I told you we're going to keep going, but I want to stop for just a minute and cover a couple of things. First, notice the ruler and his posture. We know a little more about him from Mark and Luke's accounts, but... His name was Jairus, or Jairus, 
and he was the administrator of the synagogue there in, the, in Capernaum. The ruler of the synagogue had held an important position of authority, was part of the legalistic ranks of Judaism. And though he didn't preach or teach, he was elected among the elders and tasked with keeping order in, during public worship. And the temple also kind of served as a community center in some ways, too. It was a community gathering place. So he was a pretty important man in the Jewish order. And yet, what did he do here? How did he approach Jesus? He kneels before him. Yes, George, he kneels. What does that tell you about his faith then? Yeah, it was real. Or at least he was... He knew this man could help him. He didn't know who he was yet, probably, but he had faith to come and posture himself humbly before Jesus, thinking, I think he can help me. I believe he can help me or help my daughter. All right, let's keep reading. Oh, well, I guess I, I was going to tell you, I was showing it to you in Mark. I forgot about that. Mark said in 5, 23, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Do you see his desperation? That's the wrong passage, Pastor? Did I miss? No, no, no. Okay, okay. Sorry. He was desperate. He was imploring before the before Jesus. He, want, he was making a faith statement. I think you can help me. Pretty bold for a synagogue ruler, wasn't it? Pretty bold. Yeah, it was. Let's talk about the difference between Mark and Matthew here. And maybe that's part of what was um, tricking you there, Al. Did you catch it? Here in Mark, it says, my little daughter is at the point of death. What did it say back in Matthew? Do you remember? That she died, yes, that she died. Um, interesting thing, the word in Matthew is, I'll put it up here, and I probably won't say it right, teleteo, teleteo, to die, it means to die. The little parenthesis means how many times that word is used in the New Testament. It's translated five times as died, two times as die, two times as put to death, once as dead, and once as the end was near. Clearly it meant the end was near, dying was happening. It was, she was in the throes of death. And what I'm pointing out is, remember these two men that God gave this story to and told to write it down for us, they were telling it from their own perspective. It's not a contradiction, she was so close to the point of death that she may well have been dead by the time that Jairus spoke to Jesus. We do know that she was indeed dead before Jesus acted upon her condition. Uh, in fact, we know that. I think that's from verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. 
Love the way he said it, the way he looked at her. And I don't think, I mean, I don't know, you can't hear the tone, but I don't think he said, do not fear, only believe. I don't think that's how he did it to you. I think he looked at this sweet daddy and he said, do not fear, only believe. Your daughter will be well. Just believe. Trust me, I got this. He says that to me sometimes. Does he say that to you? (laughs) The Savior who possessed all authority over sin and paralysis and sickness knew that the daddy just needed to trust him. Do not fear, only believe. All right, let's go back to Matthew and see what happens at the end of the story. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Sometimes how matter-of-fact scripture is just kind of makes me smile. I mean, this is amazing. This girl that the whole crowd thought was dead, Jesus took her by the hand, the girl arose, everybody found out about it. I mean, just kind of like, okay. (laughs) To every indication, the girl was dead. Professional mourners had already gathered. There were flute players crowd. William Barclay elaborates on the custom of the day, and I put some of it, I believe, on your listening sheet, but I'm going to, if you will indulge me, I'm going to read to you some, some things that he says. He says, there were three things expected at a time of grief. There was the tearing of clothing. There were no fewer than 39 different rules and regulations which laid down how garments should be rent. The rent was to be made standing. For a father or mother, the rent, the tear, was exactly over the heart. For others, it was on the right side. The rent must be big enough for a fist to be inserted into. For seven days, the rent must be left gaping open. For the next 30 days, it must be loosely stitched so that it could still be seen. For a woman, she was to rend her garment in private and then reverse it so that she wore it back to front. And then in public, she was to tear or rend her outer garment. Isn't that interesting? I mean, all these little details. And then secondly, other than the tearing of clothing, there was wailing for the dead. This cry of grief was not necessarily spontaneous. Professional wailers made a nice profit from this custom. There are in every city and community women exceedingly cunning in this business. They are always sent for and kept in readiness. And then they would influence others around so that it would just, uh, uh, a great cry of grief. Oh, you could have wailed, yes. If we need some wailers, Bruce, you'll be my first call. (laughs) And then there were flute players. That was the third thing. Flute music was associated with death. I'm sorry if any of you in here are flute players. Um, When Jesus came to the home of Jairus, he found likely all three things. He found a crowd gathered, Scripture tells us, and he, he found, it said, flute playing. 
the flute players and the crowd making a commotion because they knew that the girl was dead. That's what he meant. But then he says she's not dead, she's sleeping. Okay, since we looked at the Greek word earlier, I decided I'd just look this one up, see what it was. Maybe it meant it was one of the same things, but it's different from the previous one. This is it. Apothnesco. It occurs 111 times in the New Testament. And the dictionary thing that I looked at said it stresses the significance of the separation that always comes with divine closure. With divine closure. We don't really know what Jesus meant by this. He could have been saying, y'all messed up. She's not dead. She's very sick and dying, but she's not dead. Maybe she's in a coma. But I don't think so. And this is just Terry. This is just Terry. It doesn't tell us. It, the scripture doesn't tell us. We know what Jesus said. She's not dead. She's sleeping. I think he was saying, it's not over yet. I haven't closed it yet. I say when it's over. And it's not over for this little girl. There's been no apothnesco, no divine closure. And I say this girl will live. Not closed for her yet. Again, it's just what I say. So, Jesus, King Jesus has authority because he triumphs over death. He shows his authority by triumphing over death. To me, it's a little bit of foreshadowing that he's triumphant over death. I mean, think about it. Later, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And of course, later still, God will raise himself, raise Jesus himself. And then he's going to raise each one of us, too. Those of us who place our faith in him. We no longer have to face death in the same way because Jesus' victory is ours. His apothnesco, his divine closure for us, is for us to be reunited and restored with him in heaven. Familiar verse that you can probably all quote with me. I probably don't even have to put it on the screen. Romans 6.23, I think it sums it up pretty beautifully. For, say it with me. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The girl was destined to die. She was dying, and yet Jesus gave her physical body life again. We are destined to die. We deserve it from our sin. Yet Jesus gives our spirits eternal life. His divine closure again is for us to be with him. One more point about the authority of Jesus in this chapter, and I might need to explain this one a little bit to you, what I'm thinking anyway. I think King Jesus demonstrates his authority by exhibiting resolute compassion. You agree, huh? I agree. These two faithful men Jesus, and he immediately showed compassion. Yes, yes, I agree. Come to him, don't we? And be faithful. 
come to him with that faith? Yes. Excellent summary of it. When Jairus approached him, he immediately got up and followed the distraught father. As he traveled there and word came that the girl was dead, just as we already talked about, Jesus just looked at the father and said, don't be afraid. Just believe. And when he raised the girl to life, he showed compassion because he didn't just say, wake up, girl. (laughs) He reached out. He took her by the hand. And he raised her up. He spoke to her. Um, In one of the Gospels, it says, little girl. And another one, it says, my child. He tenderly restored her to life. And, And think also, if she was dead like the mourners thought she was, he touched her. You weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> you weren't supposed to touch a dead body. So again, he's showing his authority. I say what is clean and what is unclean. And this girl needs me. I'm going to touch her and bring her back to life. Yeah. What was dead was alive. Power and authority of King Jesus was tender and compassionate. But do you see also his steadfast determination? It was not just compassion. It was resolute compassion. When he was stopped along the way, they said, it's too late. Don't bother going to see that girl. But he didn't allow that to stop him. When the crowd mocked him and laughed at him and said, she's dead. What are you saying? Didn't let that stop him. He steadfastly pursued what God had called him to do. He steadfastly pursued what God had called him to do. I had to underline that after and highlight it for myself because I just wanted that. I want that to describe me. I want to steadfastly pursue whatever God has called me to do. May it be said of all of us. Okay, I know I've just kind of rambled on, told you a lot. Let's look at it one more time, all of it. King Jesus in this chapter demonstrates his authority by forgiving sins, by knowing thoughts by restoring life, by triumphing over death, and exhibiting resolute compassion. Lots of ways he showed authority. We're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but I want to give you some time to talk at your tables. And I'm going to give you a few questions. Here they are. Which story spoke to you most and why? Just kind of like to hear that. And then I want you to discuss the similarities and differences you see in the reaction of the crowds in the two stories. And what do you think caused such different responses? And then third, how can you show resolute compassion to someone in your life? Okay, So those are our questions. I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk about that. And then we'll come back and let you kind of tell me a little bit of what you thought. Okay? Go.